This is hell. Alex, is that from Machine Music? Do you know what album that's from? Uh, no, but it has dirt and I want to be black on it, which uh, I'm not going to be playing before the show. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that song, though. I think that's Machine. I could be, I'm probably wrong. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, three times a week in our podcast shortly after at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. This Is Hell also airs abbreviated versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, every week. Twice every week on the Chicago Southside's Lumpen Radio. And thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. We all know our future does not include fossil fuels like coal. It's obvious to anyone who's paying attention that clean energy and alternative power sources are inevitable. We simply cannot continue to contribute to worsening climate change by burning more carbon emitting fuels that cause global warming. That future was so self-evident that more than 10 years ago, states across the U.S. passed clean energy legislation and enacted all sorts of green plans back in the aughts. The fossil fuel industry had finally met its match and solar and wind power were going to light our bright future. But not so fast, said the dirty energy crowd. And sure enough, during the past decade, the carbon-intensive sector has fought back with legislation of their own that undermined progress on alternative resources. Some even tried to figure out ways for the taxpayer to subsidize the decline of coal and guarantee it being burned for some time to come. And they would seemingly do anything to get their dirty legislation passed. In a few minutes, we'll discuss one of those cases when we speak with author and writer Nathaniel Johnson, who posted the Grist article, How a $60 million Bribery Scandal Helped Ohio Pass the Worst Energy Policy in the Country, Hidden Recorders, Dirty Politicians, and the Corrupt Companies that Financed It All. This article was published by Grist in collaboration with Belt Magazine. Nathaniel is a former senior staff writer at Grist. He is author of All Natural, a skeptic's quest to discover if the natural approach to diet, childbirth, healing, and the environment really keeps us healthier and happier. His most recent book is Unseen City, The Majesty of Pigeons, The Discreet Charm of Snails, and Other Wonders of the Urban Wilderness, which sounds fascinating. Find out more about Nathaniel at NathanielJohnson.org and follow Nathaniel on Twitter at Savertooth. That's S-A-V-O-R Tooth. And Nathaniel spells his first name Nathan A-E-L. So check out NathanielJohnson.org as well. Thanks to Matt and Altoona who suggested we have Nathaniel on the show. We truly appreciate it, Matt, and we'll be talking about Matt and Altoona again in a moment. So stay tuned in, Matt and Altoona. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. 
Alex, first, I know that you're over there with somebody, unless you've been talking to yourself in a very, very animated way this morning. Uh, what, who, are, who is joining you over there in the producer's booth? Dan H. is back. Say hi, Dan H. Oh, hello, Dan H. How are you? Hi, Chuck. Hey, listen, I need to get your mailing address, so please send me an email with your mailing address as soon as possible, because I have a whole bunch of stuff I want to send you in the mail. No, it's just I just need your mailing address. It's still... <laughs> Uh, Alex, anything new about you? How was your weekend? I gotta say, man, I don't know how Mao Zedong did it. Uh, it <laughs> a, after, can we just leave it there? I just like that. Uh, after a couple bad economic reports in our household, mm-hmm. I instituted the one family, one towel, one day policy. Uh-huh. It lasted seven hours. <laughs> hey, have you ever had your uh, laundry machine break down? Uh, I am waiting for it to break down, and it's going to happen. Ask me in like two weeks, because <laughs> it doesn't dry things anymore. It's just a ritual at this point. The Our uh, washer just stopped spinning this weekend, and that was really problematic, and I was very glad that one of our neighbors just bought a brand new washer dryer because his had just died as well and now I had to get mine fixed and I, we I went online and I was asking people you know what do you think is a good uh, washer dryer to get in replacement it was like oh you can just open it up and fix it yourself yeah yeah I got those skills I've got those kind of skills I'm sure uh, this weekend for me, I got my second COVID haircut. Yes, so far during our nearly two year pandemic I've only had my haircut twice and as I'm still not comfortable going to an actual barber. My girlfriend, again, cut my hair. To be clear, my girlfriend is not a trained hairdresser in any way. However, she is an artist with many artistic skills, and I have complete faith in her to do a good job eventually, which means I currently have an unfinished haircut. Some editing, as she calls it, still needs to be done. Did I also mention she's an editor as well? Luckily for me, I'm not going to see anybody but her and Alex and Dan today, so whatever shortcomings my hairstyle may currently have will hopefully be corrected this evening. And I believe Alex cut his own hair at least once during the pandemic so far, so I don't think that his standards are all that high for a haircut. But more important than my nearly completed haircut, Alex, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell, which so far is a resounding dud, (laughs) is what's your influence in it? What's your influencing? You would think more people would be interested in signing or in, uh, answering that I'm, question. I'm not influencing very much over here with this question. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The this is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask, the coffee mug, the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, the trucker's cap, the winter hat. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth as we do most weeks. Alex will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Nathaniel on coal-fired corruption in Ohio. Again, the question from Mel is, what you influencing? What you influencing? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and I believe Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Alcosynth. Oh, God. At the beginning of the year, we mentioned the new study revealing there is no hangover cure. 
Ian Hamilton, associate professor of addiction at the University of York, responded <laughs> to that study in an article at the conversation titled, Why Most Hangover Cures Don't Work, But a Few Might Help. New study. While the few cures that might help were revealed to be clove extract, tofanemic acid, and pyrinitol, pyrinitol, Hamilton describes why each can be effective. He also offers an alternative. Hamilton writes, The quality and choice of non-alcoholic drinks has improved in recent years and is a guaranteed way of avoiding a hangover. Snooze. <laughs> However, this option misses the point of why most people consume alcohol. <laughs> yeah. It won me back. And it uh, makes them feel different. Whether it's happier, more sociable, or to simply relax, something alcohol does very well. Or just to cry a lot. One potential and interesting non-alcoholic option is alcohol. Alcarel, Alcarel, commonly referred to as Alcosynth, developed by David Nutt, a professor at Imperial College, going to get in trouble for that one, in London. Drinks with this ingredient claim to stimulate the same part of the brain that alcohol targets. The aim is to reduce neural activity. Yes, it is, isn't it? (laughs) To give drinkers that calm and relaxed feeling usually associated with alcohol intoxication. So that makes this week's hangover cure Alcosynth. (laughs) Good Lord. I feel like I'm in a horrible episode of Star Trek Next Generation. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell in 2022. If you would like to run the board as Alex and Richard do, as Sebastian started doing this year, as Dan is being trained to do today, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. What better way to start your new year with a new gig running the board here on This Is Hell? It's the next best thing to winning the lottery, and it's a lot easier. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. during the week and our Patreon podcast as well. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own own projects as well and we actually pay our board operators a living wage if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on this is hell email me at chuck at this is of course with this position you need to live in the chicago area however we do have other work that can be done remotely no matter where you live in the world so if you are interested in being a board operator or working with us remotely email me at chuck at this is and we will get you started on your New and exciting life as part of the This Is Hell crew, and this is where Matt and Altoona comes back in. Matt emailed us last week, not only suggesting we have Nathaniel as a guest, but also saying he would be interested in doing any remote work we may need help doing. And it all sounded too familiar to me, so I looked it up, and sure enough, Matt and Altoona got in contact with us back in October of 2020, which seems like a million years ago. Alex had mentioned that we were looking for people who could transcribe interviews at the time. And uh, Matt wrote saying he had some experience transcribing long-form interviews from from his job as a university research assistant. So thanks for not only suggesting today's guest, Matt, but thanks for showing interest in working on the show. We'll be getting in touch with you shortly about transcribing interviews. Coming up, the fossil fuel industry fights back against alternative energy legislation. We'll have This Week in Rotten History tell you what happened this week on Patreon and have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what you influencing? What you influencing? Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. 
There was a sense that clean energy was an inevitability. Sure, fossil fuel interests would fight against it, as they always have, but there was no stopping an expansion of solar and wind in light of the effects of climate change that were revealing themselves for all of us to see. It seemed like it was the end of denialism that we had all accepted the fact that we could simply no longer burn fossil fuels if we were going to do anything about global warming, which was already displacing millions of people with countless more already losing their lives to the worst effects of climate change. But fossil fuels were not giving up without a fight. In fact, in one state, they tried every dirty trick in the book to make it certain fossil fuels like coal would be burned into the future at taxpayer expense. Here to tell us a story that could be coming to a state near you, if not the one you live in. Writer and author Nathaniel Johnson posted the Grist article how a $60 million bribery scandal helped Ohio pass the worst energy policy in the country, hidden recorders, dirty politicians, and the corrupt companies that financed it all. Welcome to This is Hell, Nathaniel. Hey, it's great to be in hell. You know, this is one thing that always kind of bugs me about whenever we hear about when we whenever we hear on about corruption, it's always the focus is on the politicians and not as you as the headline points out the corrupt companies that financed it all. Is is this case in Ohio? Are they at least focusing on not just the people who were corrupted, but the organizations that were corrupting them? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. There's the the uh, the corporate overlords are under investigation. Uh, and one of the lobbyists from, um, from first energy, uh, has, has pled guilty. Um, but you know, there's, there's these, uh, corporate raiders and people who make a lot of money moving, moving stocks around, uh, who are sort of behind all of this that probably are, are going to go scot-free. Well, wow, that's really interesting because the investors is another aspect of this that people don't really consider that the people who were profiting from this, the people who are benefiting from this alleged corruption, uh, they're also prime movers in the whole situation with the scandal. And you write that on a warm morning in July of 2020, FBI agents and local sheriff's deputies converged on a farmhouse just outside the tiny town of Glenford in central Ohio. They led away Larry Householder, insurance man, gentleman, farmer, and the powerful leader of a Republican supermajority in the Ohio. Ohio House of Representatives. Federal prosecutors brought Householder before a judge and laid out their findings. Their investigation suggested the politician had orchestrated a grand conspiracy in which three electric utility companies, not just one, three, First Energy, its former subsidiary, Energy Harbor, and American Electron, Electric Power gave Householder a $60 million slush fund to help get like-minded politicians in the Ohio, into the Ohio legislature. In exchange, Householder helped steer billions of dollars in subsidies their way. If he was using this money to get like-minded politicians into the Ohio legislature, how much of an open secret, secret was this? How obvious was Householder's plan? It's one of those things where... As a journalist, you, you could tell looking back at, at the, the local journalism that was covering this at the time um, that there was there were, there were a lot of suspicions, you know. But you can't just come right out and and say it. Uh, there were there was these huge dark money slush funds that the journalists were doing really yeoman's work, pointing out, you know, where, where is this money coming from? There's there's this 
there's this thing called Generation Now. There's this thing called hardworking Ohioans, you know, for for uh, for energy futures. Um, what the hell is this? And they're all pouring money toward toward these householder supported races. You know, this seems awfully fishy. Um, but but you you sort of have to connect all of the dots. And kind of the beautiful thing about this story is that the FBI published all their findings that did all that. You know, it, it really brought home the receipts where it showed, um, you know, these guys were, were sitting around talking about how they could get money from the energy companies and, and turn it into political power. So did Householder, did he only target... Uh, Republicans, or did he also look for like-minded Democrats and independents as well? Well, in terms of, gosh, that's a good question. Um, in terms of this, the people that he supported, I know the vast majority, I think all of them were Republicans in terms of the, uh, the, the races that, that he helped finance. Um, but then but there certainly were Democrats that, they came on board and, and voted alongside him for some of his priorities. How much debate was there over the bill? Because you write House Bill 6 nearly halved the renewable power that utilities were required to buy, eliminated energy efficiency laws, handed a billion dollars to the state's two nuclear power plants, and spent even more money to keep coal plants burning. A recent report from Global Associates, an energy consulting firm, suggests the law will cost Ohioans $2 billion in excess utility bills and $7 billion in health care costs stemming from pollution over nine years. So how much debate was there in the legislature over this bill? Well, there was quite a bit of debate. Um, you know, the pe- people didn't didn't like it, uh, but, but there was this supermajority of Republicans and you had the House Speaker, Larry Householder, um, pushing this hard, harder than anything else. You know, there, there's one Republican who is saying, good God, the pressure on this bill, you know, in text messages that were revealed uh, via public information requests, the pressure that I'm getting is like nothing else on this. So, you know, the the whip was, was strong and fierce on this one. Uh, so people, you know, people, it, it's really remarkable because as you said in the intro, Everybody kind of agreed, Republicans, Democrats, 10 years before this, that clean energy made sense. You know, it was going to be in the long run, it was going to be cheaper. It was going to be uh, better for the environment, better for people's health. You know, it was going to be good for jobs in the in the state. And, and they all voted to to support clean energy. Um, and it really took this massive project. You know, I wrote 60 billion $60 million. But since that story has come out, uh, there's been a federal audit of, of the utilities that suggests it's more than double that. It's like a $133 million uh, bribery scandal. Wow. So how aware was the public that this would cost them so much? Because you were saying that this is not Repu- at all. Well, because this is a Republican dominated legislature and, you know, Republicans off, you know, are famous for focusing on the bottom line and their concerns for lower taxes. So it, it just doesn't make sense to me that they would be do, does being um, anti-climate change or being a, a climate change deni- or having climate change denialism. Does that trump even concerns over the bottom line when it comes to Republican politics in Ohio? I mean, I think the concerns 
over the bottom line. We, we've seen that Republicans are very concerned over the bottom line when, when Democrats are in power uh, and not so concerned about the bottom line in any way uh, when, when they hold the reins of power. Uh, you know, you, you see this on the federal level. Every, every time the, the Republicans take power, we, we go massively into debt. Um, so, so, I mean, the, the justification for this bill was that did sort of come out of right-wing ideology. The idea was we're going to take away the government mandates and we're going to instead uh, just use good old economic incentives. You know, we're going to take away the mandates for renewable energy and instead we're just going to put some incentives there for, for people to use a little bit more nuclear power. Um, but basically what that did was take away the cheapest forms of, of moving to clean energy and then put the, the ratepayers, you know, the regular Joes who are just paying for their energy on the hook to subsidize not only nuclear energy, you know, which is, which is cleaner, much cleaner than coal, but also coal energy, which, which just made zero sense. So was this not then about climate change denialism as much as it was the Republican belief in being opposed to regulation and market solutions for any problem? I mean, I think that maybe some people were swayed by that, but I think what it was really about was was just simple quid pro quo. You know, it was, it was about supporting the, the coal industry. Uh, it was about supporting... You know, there are people, investors say, look, we, here's this here's this failing energy utility. If we can buy it cheap and then trick the people into bailing it out, we'll be rich. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like as a journalist, usually I, I try and give people the benefit of the doubt and figure out what the what the noble motivations are. In this case, you know, maybe, you know, Householder came from an area that, that was traditionally coal country and it, it lost that industry. And, you know, maybe he had a place in his heart for that. But, you know, really it was about just pure economic incentives and trying to make money for these dinosaurs to hold on a little bit longer. You also point out that when both opponents and backers of House Bill 6, this is the bill that uh, deregulated the industry and also uh, was seen, well, we'll discuss it here a second. Uh, House Bill 6 are asked about uh, the scandal. They tend to talk about nuclear power. To opponents, it was a nuclear bailout. To backers, it was a sort of state-level Clean Air Act meant to keep Ohio's two nuclear plants from closing, thereby preserving the state's largest source of zero emissions energy. But nuclear power was mostly a red herring that utilities use to distract from the real thrust of the law, keeping obsolete coal plants and coal mines profitable. And you quote Leah Stokes, who wrote about the episode in her book, Short-Circuiting Energy Policy, saying House Bill 6 was really a coal bailout wrapped in a clean energy and nuclear argument. So why would opponents focus on House Bill 6 being a nuclear bailout and not a coal bailout meant to keep coal uh, mine, miners and mines profitable. What was that believed to be a more likely successful campaign to be yep. anti-nuclear bailout than anti-coal? Yeah, I think I mean nuclear for all its, you know, the scary images that that nuclear bombs conjure, um, 
has has some real benefits. You know, it's you can you can produce a lot of power uh, without much waste at all. Uh, when you know you you compare it to coal power, you're spewing radioactive waste, more radioactive waste than is produced by nuclear power, by the way, and you're spewing it into the air, you know, whereas in, you're not containing it in casks, these dry casks that they do for nuclear, it's, it's going right out the smokestacks. And, um, you know, to say nothing of the, the PM 2.5, you know, the small particulates that are going into everybody's lungs. So, so you know, there, and, and of course, Republicans have just had this kind of hard to understand hard on for nuclear power for for decades. So you could get Republican support for nuclear power and you could get increasingly democratic support for nuclear power as as a clean energy solution. So there's there's it does provide some cover whereas coal is just increasingly hard to justify. So is it also because I mean I would assume that uh, the coal industry provides a lot more jobs than any nuclear power plant could. Is this all about jobs? No, I, I mean, I, I think the coal industry is is not, it's sort of comparable. You know, the, the nuclear power plants, there's a ton of high paying jobs. You got to have smart engineers and everybody working in the, there's, they require a lot of workers. Um, you know, it's, that's what makes, nuclear power relatively um relatively capital expensive is it just you know it's big and it requires a, a lot of workers it you know the number of the, there's more there's more yoga instructors than, than coal miners in the united states is it, that that sort of uh it, that that part of I, I think just doesn't doesn't make sense anymore it's it's amazing how you know much of a a presence coal has in our, you know, the idea of the coal miner still has in the United States. There's this resonance still, um, but it, it's really not that big of a deal in terms of the labor force. So if Ohio's labor force isn't dependent upon coal mining, how much is Ohio's energy dependent on coal? Um, I should, I, you know, I, I should look up. I have these numbers. <laughs> I should look it up. Um, but there's, they, they had, they have, um, one nuclear or one coal plant that's, that's running in Ohio. And then there's some imports, uh, from surrounding States. Uh, I can look up the exact energy mix. So. You know, one of the things I really don't get about this is you write over the course of four years, FBI investigators tapped phones, recruited informants and traced the movement of money between householder and utilities. Grist obtained the FBI's findings and court documents, along with interviews and accounts published by Ohio newspapers. We've used this information ahead of the start of Householder's trial to this is uh, written late January to build out a narrative of the brazen attempt by utilities to buy legislation. The story has all the details of a pot boiler. Hidden recorders, damning conversations, a suicide, bribes, dirty politicians, and corrupt companies that finance it all. But it also presents an unusually vivid picture of the larger trend of fossil fuel companies using every trick they can to keep milking money from their investments in dirty energy, tiptoeing right up to legal boundaries, and sometimes stepping over them. So how is what happened in Ohio unique when it comes to fossil fuel companies and any history of buying influence on how and how much is this just par for the course? This is how fossil fossil fuel industry has always worked. 
I think it's I think it's pretty much par for the course. I mean, this is a particularly egregious example, um, or at least we're seeing the egregiousness in the cold light of day. Uh, we have a lot of details exposed here. But, uh, you know, you can point to a lot of other pretty egregious examples. And, you know, Illinois, Commonwealth Edison, there's there's this giant bribery scandal. This, this story could have been about that as well. That, that was pretty ridiculous as well. And um, other executives have gone to jail recently um, for similar things. And you can go all the way back to, to Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And, you know, this the way you make a ton of money in this country is if you don't if you're not if you're not uh willing to simply innovate and create something new but you also want total domination right you want to be a rockefeller is you 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 get a successful business you and then you use politics to crush your competition um and it's a little bit different right now with the fossil fuel industry it's less about crushing your competition and more about using politics to maintain uh, viability for a few more years if we can just hold on and milk these power plants just a little bit longer if we can hold on and keep electric vehicles from coming online if we can hold on and keep americans believing that you know they need big trucks that produce clouds of diesel fumes um you know, that all makes us a little bit richer. And uh, so there's, I, it, it sounds sort of obvious as it's coming out of my mouth, right? These things, these things are going to happen. There's money to be made. And, you know, the people who, who don't really care about ethics and, and want the money are, are going to take advantage of it. It does seem really obvious, but I think that people might dismiss it as cynicism unless you've not written an article and done this investigation that you did. In your opinion, can dirty power plants stay profitable without influencing influence peddling? I mean, we were talking about the dependence that Ohio workers might have on the coal industry, which they don't. The dependence that Ohio has on coal as a fuel source, which it doesn't. So is the fossil fuel industry being forced to act in what can be considered immoral or unethical ways in order to stay afloat? Do they have a choice? I mean, I think so. I just looked up the, the energy mix for coal for Ohio. It's, you know, it, it, it looks like it's uh, about 20% of the, of the state energy mix. So, so there's a, that's real, you know, it's, and there's the problem about these uh, questions is that you have to, you have to be careful and nuanced uh, and figure out, you know, how do we, how do we, move away from this in a, in a way that doesn't um, bankrupt states and, and charge poor people lots of money. Um, so, so on the one hand, you have, you have people, you have climate wonks and you have think tanks and you have all these smart people trying to, trying to be fair and trying to be nuanced. And then on the other side, you have these lying liars who want to make lots of money um, lying. And it's, it's very hard for the regular Joe who has to go file a ballot um, to determine, you know, the, the one is making a fair-minded argument and another is um, is just blowing the truth out of the water. 
We are speaking with writer and author Nathaniel Johnson, who posted the Grist article, How a $60 million Bribery Scandal, and according to Nathaniel, it's now a $120 million bribery scandal at least, helped Ohio pass the worst energy policy in the country, hidden recorders, dirty politicians, and the corrupt companies that finance it all. Nathaniel is author of All Natural, a skeptic's quest to discover if the natural approach to diet, childbirth, healing, and the environment really keeps us healthier and happier. His most recent book is Unseen City, the majesty of pigeons, the discreet charm of snails, and other wonders of the urban wilderness. And like I was saying earlier, that sounds absolutely fascinating. So you quote Dave Anderson, communications and policy manager of the nonprofit watchdog organization Energy and Policy Institute, which you know that it has been digging up the details of this case for years. Anderson says, for regulated utilities, profits are determined by how much political influence you wield. It's really just all about the money and driving as much profit as they can for their shareholders. Do regulated private utilities as opposed to publicly owned utilities, in your opinion, mean private interests need political influence and therefore an increased potential for there to be potential corruption of uh, elected officials? Does privatization utilities necessarily lead to attempts at controlling political influence? You know, that's, that's a really interesting question. And I, I've, uh, I was doing some reporting on, on PG&E, which is the, the utility up here in California um, that, that's, <laughs> that keeps burning down the state uh, and is also a, a private utility. Um, and, you know, it seems so I, I've been I was arguing with with some climate wonks or not arguing, but just trying to get to the bottom of that question. You know, it, and it's clear that there is this economic incentive, right, for utilities to pull the wool over our eyes when they have have a fiduciary duty uh, to do so, basically, to their shareholders um, that wouldn't exist when they're publicly owned. However, these these experts that I was talking to have pointed to publicly owned utilities that also have a real history of, of poor behavior. Um, you know, the, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the, there's, 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 some, there's some real dirty deeds that have been done um, by big utilities that are publicly owned as well. They don't have that same incentive. So I think that, and I think that's an important point, but the, the key is I think that anytime you have something that's big and powerful, um, you need to build in the right structures for control and, and regulation and checks and balances um, because there's the opportunity for someone to, to get in there and say, okay, well, if we can just increase the rates by a little bit and it, it can be a fraction of a cent, but a fraction of a cent coming out of everybody's pocket. And if that can all go into my pocket, uh, that that's going to really make me rich. So, so the bigness does, I think matter more than who owns it. So the answer isn't simply just going back to what the old process was when they were not privately owned, correct? I mean, I, I think I, I think I'm not the best person to. You know, this is this is something that I'd I'd like to think about, and I'd like to do all the interviews on this before I I fully adjudicate on that. But uh, you know, it, it seems like it, it would help, uh, and. But I don't think it's it would be a silver bullet. 
you write that in 2008, Ohio passed its first renewable energy law, mandating the construction of wind turbines and solar panels while creating programs to help residents and businesses insulate their homes and upgrade their appliances. Few saw any reason to oppose the measure, as you were pointing out earlier. It came after a parade of states passing their own renewable electricity standards beginning in the late 1990s. And both conservatives and liberals liked the idea of homegrown clean energy creating jobs and protecting the environment. In Ohio, the bill passed both houses with nearly unanimous support, but then the legislation started working. Turbines and solar panels sprouted, producing electricity that crowded out the energy from old power plants, cutting into utility profits. You then quote Dave Anderson of uh, Energy and Policy Institute again, saying, you saw the utilities in the fossil fuel industry catching wind of how quickly they could lose their stranglehold on the energy system. So what impact did clean energy legislation know how have on the competition between clean and dirty in, in, uh, energy? Did it unfairly disadvantage either side, or did it actually make the playing field far more fair and undo the stranglehold on the energy system that the fossil fuel industry had? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's the latter. Anytime you have a, an incumbent uh, technology, it's going to have an advantage at first, whether it's, you know, cassette tapes, uh, and MP3s, you know, in the beginning, everybody has cassette tapes and and they're looking at these MP3s and they're saying, what is this newfangled thing the kids are using? Um, but if you give the MP3s a chance and a platform, uh, they're going to take over the world. And so I think that's sort of where we're at with with clean energy. Uh, if it, there, it, it does take a bit of investment. Um, it does take government policy to to get these things to the place where they can compete financially. Um, but once they do, they're going to be a really superior product. And we're already seeing that in, in many areas. And it's interesting too, because, you know, we're talking about utilities and whether they're, they, you know, private utilities are essentially bad or not. You look at Excel, uh, private utility, and it's really, it's really embraced this clean energy uh, revolution and, and seeing that it can make a lot of money from it and say, okay, we're going to, instead of, instead of fighting to retain all of our fossil fuel plants, we're going to say, look, we're going to build all of this wind and solar, and we're going to build the new infrastructure to support it. Um, and by the way, we're going to charge the, the ratepayers 15 to 20%, whatever it is, uh, on all this, all this capital investment that we're doing. And, you know, so they're, they're, they're being ethical all the way to the bank. It's possible to do, but it's just, it takes a little bit more imagination um, than, than simply, you know, retrenchment. You point out that in 2008, uh, these companies were fighting over the uh, bill, at the, uh, the renewable energy bills at the time. So I'm just curious, in 2008, how hard did the fossil fuel companies, especially Ohio's coal industry, fight that 2008 clean energy legislation? Did or because I'm, I guess I'm wondering if they simply did not recognize what a threat clean energy would be to them, or did they dismiss? They clean- did. Okay, so yeah. were they dismissive? Yeah, I mean, I think they were like, okay, you know, here's this fad. We'll we'll throw a little money at at this. That's fine. We'll we'll get these people to shut up. You know, let these let these hippies with their rooftop solar panels. They can have a little bit of net metering 
power and and we'll use it as, a, as like this greenwashing thing. This is what Leah Stokes uh, has really shown uh, very clearly and, and eloquently in her work is that there's this this early period where it's just not controversial and it sort of sneaks through. And but once it starts changing things out of the world, uh, the people who uh, are, are watching their their assured profits slowly dwindling get very concerned. You write that the utility First Energy, one of the largest investor-owned utilities in America, took it a step further, emboldened by its recent legislative victory. First Energy was struggling. The utility's power plant-owning subsidiary uh, was deep in debt, and its old coal and nuclear plants were no longer providing reliable profits as renewables and cheap natural gas brought down the price of electricity. Executives needed cash to restructure that debt, and if they could get the public to provide it, they would be legends. But every bailout they tried to engineer had died in the legislature and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission had shot down an agreement that would have subsidized its nuclear and coal plants. So First Energy shifted its pitch, claiming its two nuclear plants were in danger of closing permanently. Was that a real threat? Could Ohio have lost a significant amount of power due to First Energy shutting down their nuclear plants? I mean, in theory, they could, uh, but it's you know, there was there was another nuclear plant just across the border in Pennsylvania that, uh, you know, the, the utility was making the same argument and nothing got passed and and they figured it out. You know, it, it, the, the nuclear plant didn't shut down, but they, you know, I think they restructured their debt a little bit. And the same thing basically happened in Ohio. The, in the end, the the. The company, First Energy and Energy Harbor, were, were cowed enough by the scandal that they they ended up not taking um, the the bailout money for nuclear. They took the the you know they're taking the some of that money and channeling it toward coal plants. Um, but they you know what they did is they they screwed over their union and they uh, restructured their debt and they did all of these things that they um, you know they weren't good things, but they they could have done it with without a bailout, you know, in other words, they had options. Um, But what they really wanted was for the taxpayers to come and line their pockets. You write around this same time back in the small town of Glenford, Larry Householder was formulating his own comeback story. He represented central Ohio, what was used to be coal country before the mines closed a decade earlier. Householder had stepped down from his position as Ohio Speaker of the House and left politics after the media reported that the FBI was investigating corruption allegations against him. But nothing came of those charges. And in October 2016, he and his aide, Jeff Longstreth, mapped out an ambitious strategy. Not only would Householder run for office again, but he would also recruit candidates all over the state and provide the money to help them win their campaigns. That way he could walk into the House, not as a single representative, but as the leader of a gang. Without First Energy or the fossil fuel sector providing the funding for that recruitment of candidates, did Householders still maintain the political power to get back in state legislature with a whole group of candidates that supported him and were beholden to him, or did he need that money? I think he absolutely needed it. He, I mean, he, I think he probably could have gotten reelected. Uh, you know, he may have been able to help some, some candidates in a couple other districts, but he was able to come to candidates bearing bags of money 
and help them finance their campaigns. And when they got to the legislature, they looked at him as their patron, which indeed he was. And so, uh, yeah, he, he converted money into power. And you point out that a few months later, First Energy began uh, wiring uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to a dark money organization called Generation Now that Householders team set up in Delaware. Delaware. Awesome. It was just one of a uh, one of a constellation of front groups that sprung up to lobby for a utility bailout. The technical term for a dark money group is 501c4, a form of nonprofit that can spend money in politics without revealing anything about where that money comes from. As another member of Householders team, Neil Clark, lobbyist who liked to call himself the Prince of Darkness, said in a conversation that investigators covertly recorded, quote, it's a secret. A C4 is secret. Nobody knows the money goes into the speaker's account. It is controlled by his people, one of his people, and it's not recorded. So a 501C4 is completely legal. It allows for people to donate money privately. So had at this point had Householder or was even Neil Clark discussing anything that was illegal? Well, this is the yeah, this is the sort of when you ask about what do we learn from this? Like, what what would we do differently if we want to change things as as it moves forward? What are the policies and the laws that allow um, this sort of thing to happen? I think this is where you you want to be poking. So, you know, the, this five hundred one c four. You know, this this is basically the, the kind of thing that stems from the um, Supreme Court Citizens United decision that allows for corporate speech, um, you know, corporations spending money in advertising uh, considers that to be protected by the First Amendment. Um, so, so it's been kind of hazy for a long time to, to ask, okay, what, what does it mean if, if I'm getting all of this money from a giant corporation and then I'm using it to help people out and I'm using it to help their political campaigns. Is that, is that bribery? Is that protected under the first amendment? What is that? Okay. What if I use it to, you know, to pay for my house? What if I use it to, to go to Vegas? Um, and it's, it's just kind of gotten pushed farther and farther and until, until either laws are changed or, uh, it, you know, the law enforcement folks make it clear that, that people have pushed it too far and and they start going to jail which um, may well happen in this case um you know there's this is this is where companies are going to see uh that they have an edge they're they're going to see like look my my competitors are doing this if i don't do this then i'm leaving money on the table so yeah this this it it's it's kind of unclear exactly how far you can go before it becomes illegal. And, and hopefully um, the fact that the FBI has has really latched onto this suggests that we're seeing that line being drawn. Do you think Householder's career depended upon HB6, House Bill 6, getting passed or not? If he had failed, was his political career over again? That's a good question. I don't, I mean, I think his his connection to the utter of this utility company that was, was giving him a lot of money um, would be severed. Uh, and, and they'd, they'd helped him out in multiple ways. Uh, you know, maybe he could have found, 
he had connection to payday lenders, you know, they, there's uh, lottery and, and gambling uh, legislation in, in Ohio that's, that's a, a good source of lucre for politicians. You know, maybe he could have lashed onto something else like that. Or maybe he could have, you know, just simply represented the people from his district and, and gotten elected in, in that old fashioned quaint way. Um, but yeah, he certainly, he certainly would no longer have been valuable to First Energy and uh, the American Electric Power and, and the other, you know, Murray Cole, Boych Industries, these other fossil fuel companies that were donating money toward his effort. So did House Bill 6, his support for House Bill 6, do you think that in any way reflected his constituency? It may have a, a little bit. I mean, there, there, these, there, there were coal mines uh, in the area. Uh, but these coal mines have pretty much shut down, but it may have you know, represented them in so far as their sort of vestigial uh, warmth toward the toward the coal industry. You write that in a memoir recounting his version of events. Householders lobbyist Neil Clark wrote that the uh, polling showed just a third of the public supported the new law, HB6. If petitioners gathered enough signatures to allow the public to vote on it, Householder and his team knew there was a solid chance that resi- uh, residents would reject House Bill 6. It was all at this point that they began to resort to more heavy-handed measures. Householder's crew approached signature gatherers for these petitions across the state and offered them $2,500 and a one-way ticket home if they'd stopped doing their work. Many came from out of state, hired by Ohio activists to do the legal work to repeal HB6, and recording made by an FBI informant wearing a wire at a dinner party with Householder. Clark describes the plan, quote, We have to go out on the corners and buy out their people every day. If we knock off 25 people collecting signatures, it virtually wipes them out in the next for the next 20 days, this ends the whole effing thing. What does it say to you about Householder and Clark when they thought they could get away with paying off petition workers as well as paying off these petition collection agencies to not collect signatures? How arrogant was that? Because it seems to me just kind of clumsy and a little bit too out in the public. That, that if I was going to be doing corruption, this is not how I would do it. <laughs> you know, they were firing on all cylinders. One, one thing about this story is that just... It never ceases to surprise that there were these things like like this, you know, that they're talking about very publicly. Um, it's it is truly outrageous, and uh, that's sort of what attracted me to this. Is you you know you kind of imagine that there are things like this going on, and you think no, like it, it wouldn't be quite that wild. It's not quite that cinematic, or you know. This is this is like something out of the wire, you know, where you're seeing just these blatant conspiracies and and real creativity in the way that uh, these people are are coming up with, you know, these ham-handed measures to and and not so ham-handed. I mean, it, it worked uh, to to get their way, um, and so it's it's pretty it's pretty gratifying as a journalist to uh, to be able to see behind the curtain like this. You write that, just a couple more questions for you. To take it a step further, Householder's team paid over $23 million for an advertising campaign warning that the 
Chinese government is quietly invading our American electrical grid and coming for our energy jobs. Uh, so they also exploited, exploited anti-China sentiment. Does that kind of sleazy scare advertising, that, that kind of sleazy scare campaign, does that work on Ohioans? Was the campaign pressing all the best, hottest right-wing buttons? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they and, and it comes, you know, they they had polling showing that people were worried about this and they had this like distant connection that there was there was some Chinese investment in some of the gas plants and, and some of the gas plants, you know, would be ramping up to replace uh, coal power if you know coal was shut down and so so you could see like but but there and then they say okay you know if, if you vote against the bailout basically you're doing the work of communist china um and yeah that's it worked the thing that really gets me about this whole thing is that the part that eventually gets Householder in, in the most trouble is the fact that he used $100,000 from the scheme to help him pay for a house in Florida. Uh, is that the mistake Householder made above all else, that he took money for personal use? Not that he financed 21 politicians and himself through a dark money slush fund that got him back in power in exchange for making HB6 a law. And, and if that's the case, what does that tell you about justice in this case? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that the court is going to determine, but, but you're right, that may well be the thing that, that hooks him. Um, and I, I agree. It's, it, it looks to me pretty dirty when you're taking money from, from a giant corporation and, you know, using it to consolidate power uh, in ways that, that sure look a lot like, like bribery and influence. Um, and but we simply don't have the uh, the fortitude, I suppose, to the political will at this point to make that illegal. Just one last question for you. I just wanted to mention one uh, another thing that you write here that last March, a bicyclist found the lobbyist Neil Clark's body on a lonely road near his Florida vacation home. He died of a gunshot uh, wound to the head, according to a medical examiner who concluded that it was a suicide over HB6 and the corruption trial that was happening. One last question for you, Nathaniel. And we've been speaking with writer and author Nathaniel Johnson, who posted the Grist article, How a $60 Million Bribery Scandal Helped Ohio Pass the Worst Energy Policy in the Country. You can find out more about Nathaniel at nathanieljohnson.org and follow Nathaniel on Twitter at SaverTooth. That's S-A-V-O-R Tooth. So getting back to 501c4 and dark money, Nathaniel, it seems like all of our privacy is disappearing, yet the ability to privately donate to political causes is secured. Is there a contradiction to believe in personal privacy, yet not support dark money? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think that the corporations and people are different. I, I know this is a controversial opinion in, in America, um, but, you know, humans are accountable they, they, you know, they live, they die, they can be sent to jail. Corporations, you know, one CEO gets in trouble, then he takes his golden parachute and, and retires to his, you know, bribery paid for home in Florida and another takes his place. Yeah, privacy, privacy for individuals, privacy for corporations. Um, I think we're talking about different beasts. 
Nathaniel, I really appreciate you being on the show. I want to uh, congratulate you on your potential new career as a, an electrician. I hope that that works out for you. And it's been it's great. great. It's been yeah, it's great having you on the show. And I know that you're going to keep writing in the future, and and maybe not for Grist, but in other works. So please uh, stay in contact with us because I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Thanks a lot. All right, take appreciate care. Nathaniel. You. Pretending, I'm sorry, you are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is Helen, please prove me wrong. I'm really getting tired of thinking that this is God's favorite radio show. There's got to be some proof that it's not. All you have to do is email me at chuck at thisishell.com and tell me why this is not God's favorite radio show, because I really need to be proven wrong. If what you just heard from Nathaniel on coal-fired corruption in Ohio and coming to a state near you was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding that, you know, clean energy is inevitable, or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Next week, the Patreon podcast returns to its, well, actually, next week we're not doing a show. We'll tell you a little bit about that later on this week. Or you can show your support of completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On last week's Patreon podcast, it was what has become, apparently, a regular feature here on, or on our Patreon podcast, at least. This Week in Hell, my review of this week's hell from my perspective, how it affected me, what it made me consider, none of which may reflect your view of last week's show, the impact it had on you, or what the show led you to consider. There is no story arc or narrative to This Is Hell, but This Week in Hell is my attempt at parsing what happened on the week's show, and despite the very topics, trying to determine if there was some overriding theme, whether that was our intent or not. And usually, because we never consider some all-encompassing subject matter for any week, it it's not intended whatsoever. However, in retrospect, at retrospect, at times a thread can be found and untangled, and a bigger concept may reveal itself, at least from my perspective. And last week on This Is Hell, as has been happening throughout the first five weeks of This Is Hell in 2022, white supremacy and the neoliberalism that supports its exacerbating racialized, gendered, and disabled inequality, the kind of inequality white supremacy needs to thrive, well, it reared its ugly, both reared their ugly heads again, and somehow I got that out of last week's interviews on the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, a talk on seed diversity and a conversation about what's called performative productivity. I guess what you get out of the show all depends on what your current influences are, and one of mine is, for better or worse, a small-town weekly newspaper in the northern part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. After sharing interviews from 20 and then 15 years ago, the previous two weeks, we then shared an interview from 10 years ago with investigative journalist, the investigative journalist, whose book which had just been published, Treasure Islands, uncovering the damage of offshore banking and tax havens, got the story of the world's wealthy and powerful uh, that were hiding the, uh, their money overseas. It got it into the limelight. Luckily, the U.S. worked hard to shut down those tax havens, only to allow them to reopen in the states and places like South Dakota, where the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally is held. So we shared our 2012 interview with Nicholas Shaxon, but you can only hear This Week in Hell in a classic interview from our archives that is not available 
anywhere else online by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. When you do become a subscriber to our Patreon podcast, you also get a secret code word that gives you $5 off each piece of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listening audience is responding This so week's far. question from hell is, what you influencing? What you influencing over there? Uh, Krimsky K says, I influ once or twice. It's a joke that, actually, I don't I don't know if it makes more sense if you say it out loud or less sense, Krimsky. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, talk bad about one of the three people who responded. To this one, so, uh, <laughs> that is a fantastic answer. Krimsky. Great job, Krimsky. Uh, Kelly H says a gently weeping guitar, and Mark A says <laughs> the climate. Kelly H is influencing a gently weeping guitar. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I thought he was more of a noise person. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. That is currently available at thisishell.com when you do click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via, via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history. On February 8th, 1981, 41 years ago, Tuesday, at the Karaskakis Stadium in Piraeus, Greece, near Athens, more than 32,000 soccer fans watched the football club Olympiakos score a stunning 6 to nothing win over AEK Athens. Which would not be such a stunning defeat today as Olympiakos is now a perennial winner and Athens eh, perennially sucks. A few minutes before the final whistle, a crowd of Olympiakos fans tried to exit the stadium by way of its gate number seven so that they could make their way around to gate number one from the outside and be in position to cheer the victorious players from Olympiakos as they came out of the stadium. But a door at gate seven was still closed, and as the fans pressed forward, few people lost their balance, tripped and fell, and were quickly trampled by the oblivious crowd that was surging behind them. Amid the chaos, it took police and stadium officials several minutes to get the gate door wide open. By then, 19 people were dead. Two more people died in hospitals shortly after, with at least 55 others injured. Now, is it just me, or do more people die at soccer matches than any other sporting event or mass gathering, including concerts? And if so, why? Is it simply that what is known as football everywhere else but the United States is so ubiquitous that it increases the likelihood of deaths at soccer matches, that there are so many soccer matches, it's bound to be the sport where the most fans could or would be in jeopardy, that the most fans go and watch soccer matches? But if that's the case... Horse racing happens all over the world throughout the years, so why don't we ever hear reports about gates being locked or stands collapsing at horse races? With horse racing being all about betting and alcoholic drinks being imbibed, flowing while the audience is still gambling, what explains the lack of hooliganism and violence at the racetrack? What is it about soccer that so often, relative to other sports, leads to the deaths of audience members. I have seen very angry people at racetracks, yet I've never seen any violence at one. 
if you know, oh no, why this is the case, why it's always at soccer or football matches and not at the racetrack, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and we'll read your analysis on air because I just don't get it. In Rotten History, is it just because the soccer matches can get so boring that people get angry? What is it? What is it? After all, it is the beautiful game, and at times it is the most beautiful of games, but not uh, very often. In Rotten History, February 12th, 1946, 76 years ago, Saturday, Sergeant Isaac Woodard, a 23-year-old African-American U.S. Army veteran of the Pacific Campaign in World War II, had just received his honorable discharge in Augusta, Georgia, and was on a Greyhound bus headed for his home in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And the fact that Rotten History notes that Woodard is African-American likely means this sadly will not end well for Sergeant Isaac Woodard. When the bus made a brief stop outside Augusta, Woodard asked the driver if he could go into the station and use the restroom. Apparently back in 1946, they didn't have the bathrooms in Greyhound buses yet. And suddenly I feel as if the worst part of a horror movie is about to take place. The bus driver, who was white, expressed annoyance at Woodard for asking to use a freaking restroom, but finally the driver said okay. Jesus. However, about 50 miles later, after the bus crossed into South Carolina and stopped at a station in the small town of Batesburg, the bus driver called police, who removed Woodard from the bus, though he was still in uniform, and had done nothing wrong. The officers dragged him into an alley and beat him with clubs, arrested him on a charge of disorderly conduct, and threw him in jail, where he was beaten further so severely that he went blind and suffered temporary amnesia, all for asking a bus driver if he can use the restroom. The next day in local court, Woodard was found guilty, fined $50, and denied medical attention. Meanwhile, his family, who had been waiting to welcome him home from the army, had no idea where he was. Three weeks passed before they found him in the small town infirmary and got him to a decent hospital where he learned he had permanently lost his sight in both eyes. Sergeant Woodard's story went national, inspiring widespread outrage, not that that would do anything, and even songs by artists including Woody Guthrie, not that that would do anything either. President Harry Truman finally ordered an investigation, not that that would do anything. And when the arresting officers went on trial, and then the uh, and sorry, and when the arresting officers went on trial in federal court, Woodard testified that he had been beaten and blinded for saying yes instead of saying yes, sir. So he wasn't beaten blind for merely asking if he could use a restroom, but the audaciousness, audaciousness of not saying yes, sir, to a white bus driver, a phrase he probably said 10,000 times to his superiors while he was in the military. Maybe, just maybe, Woodard did not view the bus driver with the same superior status as he would a military officer who had attained a higher rank than sergeant. But despite being beaten for not saying yes, sir, the police were quickly acquitted by an all-white jury. Or maybe it's because he did not say yes, sir, that the all-white jury acquitted the police involved in the beating. Maybe, as the jurors saw it, Woodard had broken the rules of white supremacy, justifying a beating by police that left him without sight. Now that's rotten history. And this is hell. Alex, who is our guest on the next episode of this? Uh, who is our next guest here on this week's hell? Uh, Hannah Farber, historian Hannah Farber, is going to be on to talk about her book, Underwriters of the United States, how insurance 
shaped the American founding. And we're still looking for our final guest for this week, but we do know the show will wrap up as it usually does with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing today's show. Thanks for Thanks for Dan for showing up and uh, sitting in with Alex and learning how to be a board operator. If you are interested in being a board operator, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Thanks to writer Nathaniel Johnson, who posted the Grist article, How a $60 Million Bribery Scandal, which we found out during our conversation, has now turned into a $120 million bribery scandal, if not more, helped Ohio pass the worst energy policy in the country, hidden recorders, dirty politicians, and the corrupt companies that financed it all. Find out more about Nathaniel at nathanieljohnson.org and follow Nathaniel on Twitter at Savertooth, S-A-V-O-R Tooth. Thanks to Alex again for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is, oh my God, Alcosynth? Really? Really? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.